politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. The Supreme Court under attack. The banking system under stress. Plus, the subway chokehold case. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the dominator, Dominic Pino, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babbel and Bowen Branch Sheets. More about them in due course. If you're, for some reason, not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere, from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we continue to have this spate of stories about conservative justices and especially Clarence Thomas and how they have allegedly fallen afoul of various ethical lines and rules. The latest story is about how Clarence Thomas adopted or basically adopted, I guess, a a nephew, a grand nephew. I might be wrong about that, but a kid who uh, was in desperate trouble. He was raised in the Thomas household like a son, as Thomas said. There was an issue with his schooling. And Harlan Crow suggested sending him to a, um, a certain private academy and end up paying for a year of his schooling, I think, at that academy. And then another school he went to, I believe, to, to prepare to get into that uh, academy. Not a huge amount of money, um, but he, he did pay it. The ProPublica report had a headline that was, I thought, quite deceptive. It, it said Clarence Thomas had a child in, in school and, and Harlan Crow paid for the uh, tuition, making it sound as though this was actually Clarence's son. So it's another entanglement with Harlan Crow. It's also not uh, a moral blameworthy (laughs) act. (laughs) It is a morally praiseworthy act. What do you make of it? Uh, Listen, I think um, the problem for this this campaign against... uh, Justice Thomas and his ethics is that they have still not found one law or ethical rule that he was bound to that he has broken. Nothing. It's just they, they say it's improper that he didn't disclose these. And I I, I take the point that um, people in positions of power should disclose as much as possible, um, you know, financial relationships that might be of interest when, once discovered. Just to avoid scandals like these, or or to avoid any like even what we you know what we daintily call the even the appearance of scandal. So you know, but again, you know, like a lot of other scandal supposed scandals, this one only makes the Thomases look good. I mean, this is mm-hmm. uh, this is they, this is not a, a giant 
benefit that they took on. This was a burden they took on for another family. Um, and they, they seem to have shouldered it well. And it's a burden that uh, Harlan Crow, a very wealthy, successful person, also took on uh, for someone he considered a friend. Um, no one has come up with even a plausible theory of what Harlan Crow's interests before the Supreme Court could be. Mm-hmm. And e- even if you um, even if you theorize, well, you know, Harlan Crow's a real conservative and, you know, maybe he, he just wants an ear uh, with a justice who is a conservative and rules on conservative things. It's like, you know, there's there's nothing inconsistent about Thomas's jurisprudence far from it. You know, it's like he, he voted to overturn Roe v. Wade before he met Harlan Crow, um, you know, in the Casey case. So there's no reason to suspect that a conservative, uh, benefactor would then have influence later on similar decisions. Um, so anyway, I think this is a nothing burger and it, it does highlight, however, and this is something that Dan McLaughlin has pointed out, that the total hypocrisy, I mean, we were, we were told over and over again that there's no connection between Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. There's, you know, mm-hmm. just because the Ukrainian government is giving Hunter Biden tens of thousands of dollars a month to feed his drug habits and his pr- prostitution habits... Um, that has no effect on the decisions that Joe Biden makes with foreign policy because there's no interest. They're two separate people. But now we're told that, you know, $6,200 paid directly to a school on behalf of a grandnephew is the site of something that has corrupted Thomas's jurisprudence with no evidence, right? It's like we actually, the United States actually is following an extremely pro-Ukraine policy under Joe Biden, but there's nothing to suggest that there's anything Thomas has ruled on that has any direct relation to Harlan Crow. So, Dominic, it seems like the play here from the media and the left is to create an ethical cloud around the the court or so-called ethical cloud to try to delegitimize it because you're not going to like a lot of the decisions coming out of this court. Maybe if he got profoundly lucky, force a resignation. I don't think that's going to happen. And then the longer game is if if the, the court is, to the extent the court is delegitimized, it makes it easier for you to pursue court packing should you ever get the the power and the the votes to plausibly be able to do that. I think that's exactly right, Rich. I think that uh, it is to delegitimize the court as an institution. Um, It's not just to attack the conservative justices, although that's the sort of um, form that that's taking right now. Um, But but they they want to delegitimize it as an institution because they've lost it um, and, and they've lost it so thoroughly um, and, and they don't know what to do to try to get it back. I mean, for, for decades, um, the left could count on the Supreme Court, you know, in the Earl Warren era and so on. Um, they could count on the Supreme Court as a little bonus super legislature off to the side that could just hand them little wins on stuff that they wanted. Um, and now that doesn't work anymore because the conservative legal movement was so successful um, pursuing a, uh, you know, decades long project within our constitutional order through the proper channels of, you know, confirming justices and, and vetting, uh, vetting nominees and, 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 and trying to uh, make sure that we had people who were actually going to go 
onto the federal bench and interpret the Constitution and not just impose whatever policy preference they wanted. And so, uh, you know, conservatives were so successful doing that for so long uh, that now the left just doesn't know what to do. Um, and so I, I absolutely think that it's a campaign to delegitimize the court. And it's something we should take really seriously because, um, you know, this is uh, part of our branches. Uh, you know, it's it's a branch of government. It's a really important uh, check on the other two branches. And it's a really important part of our constitutional system. And uh, I, I think that the fact that, you know, the left doesn't, they've never liked our constitutional system. Uh, they've, they've wanted to change it. And so um, this is just the latest sort of iteration of that. And it comes in response to long-running conservative success. So, Charlie, it is hilarious and galling to hear the left now complaining about how the, the court is a, a minority uh, institution imposing minority rule uh, in, uh, on our country when from from the the middle of the New Deal or towards the beginning of the New Deal to you know the day before yesterday, the, the Supreme Court was forcing major social and political changes on the country with little or no constitutional warrant. So that's point one I would throw throw at you. And point two is I'm curious just how you think about how uh, Thomas has has handled himself. Uh, this is no, nothing he's done is immoral. Nothing that he's done has uh, violated any. Uh, obligation he had to disclose this this latest example is uh, uh, is, is uh, there, there's a rule that you know if it's a child you have to disclose that this was not you know a son or a daughter uh, this was not his son or daughter but you know if you're Clarence Thomas everything should be geared towards protecting your jurisprudence and keeping it free of any possible taint, no matter how ridiculous. So some people would make the case, well, maybe he, he uh, conducted himself a little imprudently here. Well, on the first point, what we have seen from the left since the court went six to three is an illustration and a confirmation of how utterly incoherent its judicial philosophy is the right, broadly construed, has a coherent approach to the Constitution and, as a result, to the Supreme Court. One doesn't have to agree with it, although I do, to acknowledge that. For example, if you were to say to a conservative, why is it that the Supreme Court can strike down the duly enacted gun control laws in a state, but not the duly enacted abortion laws, the answer from the right would be straightforward. That answer would be because the Constitution is supreme and the Constitution mentions the right to keep and bear arms, but does not mention or imply abortion. As a result... Conservatives can credibly say in some circumstances the court has overstepped its bounds and is behaving in an anti-democratic measure while not having to apply that same rubric in other areas where the court has been empowered by the Constitution to behave anti-democratically. The left can't do that. It doesn't believe that there is such a distinction in the document. It holds the Constitution up as if it's some sort of organic structure. And as a result, it sounds strange. And if you look at the way, for example, the left has talked about the Dobbs decision, it can't decide whether or not this was democratic 
or anti-democratic. It's described as an attack on our democracy when in fact it did the opposite. The Dobbs decision returned the question of abortion to the states. It increased American democracy. It broadened uh, the scope of issues on which people are allowed to vote. So you end up listening to progressives, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, saying that Dobbs was undemocratic while demanding that the Supreme Court restore a decision that took that question out of the hands of the people. And that's why uh, it is so bizarre to hear uh, the left talk about the court in this way, and especially bizarre to hear them conclude that as a result it must be stripped of its authority, which would have the same practical effect as overturning Dobbs. If the court doesn't have the authority to determine what the law is and what's not, then you don't have Roe. On Clarence Thomas, and I am far more alarmed by the bigger picture here than the details. I could go through line by line and explain why I'm not concerned by any of these attacks. But it seems clear to me that we are seeing a concerted attempt to delegitimize the court, and in particular to go after Clarence Thomas that is ideologically driven. Uh, This has been set up. This is an op. Uh, If you look at the chronology of this, you started seeing these pieces, none of which were especially convincing. Within 10 minutes, you had pieces on Vox saying we have a constitutional crisis. You have Brian Fallon, who's called for the resignation of every single judge to the right of Sonia Sotomayor repeatedly for the last 10 years. I don't see this in essence as being any different to Donald Trump trying to overturn the election. This is an attack on a branch of our government uh, that is intended to reduce its legitimate constitutional power so that progressives can get what they want. Do I think that Clarence Thomas could have been more careful I suppose I think that he could have filled in forms better. But I also think the others could have filled in forms better. Sonia Sotomayor, was it 2016, had failed to fill in six important disclosure forms that she subsequently amended. Should she resign? It turns out that she failed to recuse herself from a case involving her publisher who had given her two or three million dollars. Does that tell us something devastating about her approach to the law? I I see a lot of cherry picking here, and I see a lot of vitriol and opprobrium being aimed at the person at whom it is always aimed and has always been aimed, which is Clarence Thomas, who for some reason seems to derange progressives in a way that no other Republican-appointed Supreme Court justice does. MBD, X question to you. Let's double barrel it. There will be uh, an ethics uh, ethics rules passed by passed by Congress imposed on the Supreme Court. Yes or no? And in the medium term, the court will end up being packed. Yes or no? Um, no, no to the first, unless Democrats get control of it. Um, and no to the second. I think. I don't think that will happen, even though this that's the aim of this campaign, surely. So, Dominic, we got a double no on the board. Yeah, I'm going to double the double no. Uh, I, say, I say no to both as well. Um, I don't think that there's going to be any attempt to do that. And I want to add uh, one thing uh, to what Charlie was saying, too. If it's actually true that these progressives are all of a sudden concerned about the Supreme Court being too powerful in our 
uh, on our uh, our political system, then they should be all in favor of the non-delegation doctrine and the major questions doctrine and all these other tenets of conservative jurisprudence that agree that the courts have become too powerful. And actually, we should uh, circumscribe them back to their constitutional role. But uh, I, I'm not holding my breath waiting for that to happen. So, Charlie, you have four no's on the board. And I will make the it. Those are just accumulating rapidly. I'll make it. I'm going to lose count. I'll make it six. Let's go all the way to eight. I don't think the ethics package will go anywhere. And they only get to pack the Supreme Court if Donald Trump is reelected and there's a massive reaction to his second term. And that would never happen. That, 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 would, that would never happen. So uh, a, a no with a little, a little uh, whisper of a, a doubt, but uh, I'm going to say no. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor. This episode, I've run into a lot of people who have been to Tuscany. Lately, I've been twice. I'd love to go back. I like Florence more than Rome. There's more stuff to see in Rome, but Rome is is, uh, uh, always overrun. Uh, by these terrible tourists. If you have an upcoming summer trip abroad that you'd like to take, my go-to travel hack is Babbel. Whether you're a seasoned traveler or embarking on your first adventure, communication is key to fully experiencing a new culture. That's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons. There's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in as little as three weeks. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language learning apps use AI for the lesson plans, but Babbel's lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not Computers, their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn, learn with Babbel. In additional lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash editors. That's babbel.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Please check it out. So, Dominic, speaking of unanimous answers to exit questions, we all confidently predicted. I don't think you're you're part of this gang, uh, gang. So, so you you don't have to uh, uh, take any of the the blame. But we all said that the banking crisis was over after Silicon Valley Bank was uh, bailed out, and lo and behold, we've had a couple more banks go under. First Republic, a a managed uh, sale to J.P. Morgan Chase just this week. Um, I, as we're recording Friday morning here, I think um, uh, small bank uh, stock market shares have, have uh, bounced back up, at least for the moment, but uh, they have been on a slide and there, there have been indications that, that other banks are going to come under major stress and, and might need to be rescued as well. What do you make of it? Well, I do sort of object to um, describing it as a crisis necessarily um what we're seeing right now is you know uh banks are some banks uh, other banks are doing just fine uh but some banks are having a rough go of it due to 
change the economic circumstances, which in any other industry we just call, you know, doing business. It happens sometimes. Businesses go under. Um, but we treat banks, uh, we, we, we treat banks differently. Um, and I think that can partially be part of the problem is the idea that we're, we're so fearful and so, um, uh, we have such a low tolerance for a bank, any bank anywhere ever going out of business, um, that mm-hmm. we, uh, that we can overreact to it. Um, but I mean, it is certain- so. So Dominic, isn't isn't the the difference, at least in theory, that you know, if Radio Shack goes out of business, that doesn't create a crisis of confidence that takes down Bed Bath and Beyond, whereas banks, you can have this this spiral. Yes, yes, that is that is the theory of of difference of it, and um, but what we've seen is you know uh, with this First Republic, you know, J P Morgan Chase comes in and buys them, right, and so. Uh, it did not have this sort of wipeout effect um, that uh, that that would have happened if we had just like left it alone or said no, you can't. Um, and the Biden administration has a real problem on this particular issue because, on the one hand, they allow J.P. Morgan Chase to come in and buy First Republic, which I think is fine. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I hold no brief for J.P. Morgan. It could have been City. It could have been Wells Fargo. It could have been anybody else. But just the fact that someone comes in and 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 buys it up to to keep uh, to to make sure that um, you know people don't lose their money. Um, but at the same time, they you know put up all these regulatory hurdles to mergers in general. And TD Bank and First Horizon Bank were two other banks that are both you know sort of mid-sized banks that were healthy, um, and they wanted to merge. Um, and the Biden administration says, no, we can't do that because, you know, mm-hmm. we'd have we'd have two big banks then. Well, OK, yeah, so I mean, they're, they're against any merger of anything. Yeah, it's exactly. Except except when in a pinch, J.P. Morgan can come in and buy right. First Horizon right. to avoid a political problem. Right. So it's it's this completely inconsistent thing. Uh, and um, and I, I think that's that's ultimately part of the problem is we don't know what we want in banking regulation. We have these two conflicting goals. One of them is that we should have. Lots of small banks uh, that only operate in specific areas because that's uh, 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 good for the competition in the market. But also at the same time, we should have extremely stable banks. Well, extremely stable banks are more likely to be bigger ones. And so um, there, there's this there's this trade-off there that we don't know how to handle, that our regulatory apparatus is set up to do both these things at the same time, and it really can't. And so we're going to keep running into these kind of problems as long as we have this sort of... Um, tangled uh, mess of, of, of conflicting regulation. So, Charlie, I, I'm not a banking expert by I- any means, and I can't speak to the, the specific mistakes that the people running these various institutions made. Uh, obviously, people at Silicon Valley Bank made made many mistakes, but there's this broader environment that it just is making it harder for these institutions to uh, do their business, which is this uh, huge spike in interest rates, which is uh, a function of the inflation that was stoked in in part by the pandemic and the supply chain crisis, and then augmented by the legislative priorities of the Biden administration. Yes. So there's two things intersecting here. One is that the environment in which these banks and all businesses and all of us are operating is less than ideal. And that is partly the fault of our Congress, which under both Biden and Trump spent and spent and spent and helped create 
the inflation that we're now seeing, which in turn helped create the interest rates we're now seeing because the Federal Reserve was obliged to respond to the inflation that Congress had helped create. The second is a series of banks and other companies that have to live within that environment and that made some bad predictions and bad decisions. Now, it was particularly the case at Silicon Valley Bank, which seemed to have assumed that we would have 1.5% interest rates for the rest of time. Uh, probably is an assumption that was made in full or at least in part by a whole bunch of other institutions which are going to go out of business or flail around and need rescuing over the next few months. And that is why you do not want to create a situation in which inflation is rampant and interest rates need to be raised quickly. Now, the reason it's a little bit different with banks is twofold. Banks are private to an extent, but they're not private in the same way as Joe's Crab Shack is private because they need charters and are extremely heavily regulated. And often they are so intertwined with the rest of the economy that there is much more of an incentive to bail them out or help them or protect their depositors than there would be to protect Joe's crab shack. And so rather than just say, as conservatives often would, look, I don't care about Joe's crab shack. That's Joe's concern. It's sad for his customers, but that's the way it goes. We are, to an extent, all on the hook when it comes to these banks. And it does matter or should matter to us whether we see a response such as the one the federal government staged for Silicon Valley Bank, which did put public resources in service of that bank, or whether we're looking at JP Morgan or Citigroup, or what you will, absorbing a bank, which is a largely private transaction. My takeaway from this is that we should vilify the people who created the environment in which these sorts of business failures and bank failures and bank stresses were inevitable. And, you know, it was not a secret. It is not a secret if you've read any history that if you spend too much money, if you make substantial changes to the money supply, then you are going to stoke inflation. It should have been profoundly obvious to Joe Biden, if not to Donald Trump before him, that having come out of four or five trillion dollars worth of spending, it would be a bad idea to put another two trillion dollars into the economy. But for some reason... It was not. And I hope that we are able, as a country, I hope we are mature enough and sensible enough as a country to lay the blame where it deserves, which is with the United States Congress, which during COVID under President Trump and then turbocharged under Joe Biden with his delusions of FDR-style grandeur, has created the knock-on effects that we are now seeing. Yeah, so uh, as I've said before, I'm generally pro-government backstop or pro-bailout, depending on the circumstances, when it comes to banking, uh, j just because there's so many in innocent bystanders who get hurt if you let the system work itself out and burn itself down, at least temporarily. Some of the worst recessions in American history uh, were caused by financial panics where, you know, your mechanic in Philadelphia minding your own business and the banks collapse, you know, and all of a sudden you're out of work. Um, and 
also the Fed obviously had to increase interest rates, but the very smart people who say two things. One, the administration stoked demand while suppressing supply, and, and that's going to augment the problem where they, they should have immediately, when they saw there was a problem, of course, they just denied there was one and said it was going to be transitory, should have hit, hit the pedal on supply to the, to the extent they could, relieving some of the pressure on the Fed. And then there's smart people who think, you know, the Fed um, sh- shouldn't have uh, been as uh, adamant about, you know, got a little softer on the, the, the rate increases and a little bit more of a wait, wait to see what the, the effect actually um, was. But MBD, you know, the dynamic here, we'll, we'll see. Maybe things will, will s- stabilize and be fine. But the the logic of this uh, phenomenon, I'm not going to call it a, a crisis since, since I, I've been corrected by, by Dominic, but would be for all the community banks, just everything to be sucked in to the too big to fail institutions where everyone feels safer. Right. Well, not only that, I mean, you go a step further. I mean, just you know, make JP Morgan the last private bank, then finally merge it with the Fed and the post office. <laughs> and suddenly you've solved all the problems, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm serious. That is kind of the long-term logic of, of what we're doing. And uh, it, it needs to be reversed. I mean, one of the problems uh, in the decline of regional banks is also the decline of regional elites in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Which also means the decline of variegated judgment among the the elites and and leads to a lot more hurting and mm-hmm. um, lemming like behavior as, during uh, economic tough times where people aren't really you know they're it's like we've nationalized the economic consciousness of elites as well as nationalized the elites themselves um, over the last sixty years. Uh, so that's a that's a a huge problem, and I don't know how to re- I don't know how to reverse it, but we're doing the opposite of reversing it. We're doubling down, and like David Bonson said on his own podcast, oftentimes we say, "Oh, well, we need more medicine from the Federal Reserve to combat the bad effects of the last doses of medicine mm-hmm. from the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve," and uh, that's that's very much the case we're facing now. I'm a little worried. I, I mean, my two worries going forward are this. I, I do think that it's possible we've been raking rates too too fast. I'm definitely worried that it's easy in this environment when when central bankers around the world are all raising rates at the same time, that it would be very easy to trip over a massive wire without realizing it mm-hmm. um, and, and just throwing the world into a global depression. Um uh, and uh, I'm also worried that the the way the Fed is talking about like the relationship, uh, and and I don't blame them because in effect they've been given this weird dual mandate of unemployment and inflation, and it causes them to over correlate them. And I think you know these statements are getting a little bit freaky where they're saying like, well, we've got to increase unemployment. And it's like, well, actually, you can increase unemployment without actually affecting inflation. You, you, that that is a real thing, and there are times when we can have very high employment rates and even rising wages, as we did in 2019, without having massive runaway inflation. Right. Um, so I, 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 I'm a little nervous going forward. I don't know if there are how many other banks are in danger. Uh, how could I know? Uh, their balance sheets are are for them to know. 
But I am worried about this kind of hurting instinct and mentality. Um, and I, and I also think we, I want to give credit to David Sachs, who, when Silicon Valley Bank was going down and everyone was blaming Silicon Valley Bank alone for its own decisions and its own, uh, you know, business model that was the only factor. He was right that it wasn't, that this was going to start spreading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, some uh, people blame David Sachs for Silicon Valley going down because a tweet thread of his, the, the Wall, a Wall, Street Wall Street Journal editorial criticized him by name for supposedly uh, <laughs> stoking the, the panic. Dominic, X question to you. We are um, past the worst of this turbulence in the ba banking system or there is more to come. Uh, there's probably a little bit more to come. Uh, I think, um, uh, Charlie's comment about blaming Congress, uh, holding Congress responsible is, is totally right for the spending aspect, but there's also two former members of Congress that we should put some blame on. And that's Chris Dodd and Barney Frank. Um, you know, the Dodd-Frank regulations, these are thousands of pages of regulations that were supposed to solve this problem that were all geared around the idea of credit risk. And now we are facing an economy where the credit risk isn't that much of a problem, but the bigger problem is interest rate risk. And we don't have a regulatory apparatus mm -hmm. that's that's geared around that. Um, and yeah, ne never, never forget, Dominic. Ne never forget that, that yeah. Frank. I appreciate you bringing it back up. But this is another persistent feature of financial crises. I mean, there's always something like every 10 or 15 years because people are Im imperfect and manias. Uh, in various forms, always happen, and then there's a huge raft of uh, regulation that has nothing to do with what the next what yep. the next one will will be. It, it's like it's like automatic. Yep. So Charlie, we're we're past the worst, or the worst is yet to come. I said to you before, Rich. There are certain times when you might as well ask the cat, and you'll get a, <laughs> a more informed answer. I don't know. I suspect that we're past the worst because we've probably seen the fruits of institutions that didn't prepare for a rapid hike in interest rates. But I just don't know enough about this to mm -hmm. predict that with any confidence. MBD? Um, I mean, I would say the worst is yet to come because it seems... Uh, I mean, I'm just going on the preponderance of expert opinion here. And the preponderance of expert opinion is we're headed for a recession in the next year at a time of potential disaster for the Biden administration, which means that every left-wing idiot is going to be tweeting at the Fed to save the economy, to save democracy from Trump or whatever. And I think the potential for a mistake is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Don't believe me because I, I was one of those who, who said that with Silicon Valley that the worst was past us. But now, now I've totally changed. Now I'm with MBD. I think the worst is yet to come. And on that cheery note, let's go to Charlie to hear more about Ball and Branch Sheets. Well, I have to ask, what do you do to sleep better? You go to bed earlier than you otherwise would? Do you silence your phone? Do you read in the evenings? You chloroform your five-year-old to stop him coming in. Those are all good starts. But if you want the highest quality sleep, you have to get the highest quality sheets. And if you do, you will discover what quality sleep really feels like with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Ball & Branch. You'll feel the difference immediately. 
because their quality is unlike anything else. Each sheet set is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that feels unbelievably soft for years to come. And I know this because I sleep on ball and branch sheets every night and I have been sleeping on ball and branch sheets for a while now. And not only have they got better over time, uh, but they have, as advertised, got softer as well. Uh, the signature hem sheets, those are the ones I have, are the best seller, and that's for a reason. Uh, that is because they feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They're perfect for cooler and warmer weather. They're loved by millions of sleepers. They're so luxurious. They're loved by four U.S. presidents. They used to be three, increasing their presidential cash. They got over 100,000 raving reviews, come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to California king, and they are made without toxins. They're free from synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. And if you're interested, Ball and Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Now, if you are convinced, if you want to get some Ball and Branch sheets, make sure you do it using our promo code EDITORS15. You go to bollandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. Put in promo code EDITORS15 and you will get 15% off your first order. Exclusions apply. So MBD, we have a, a big controversy going. At New York City, uh, incident on the, the subway, a mentally ill man was acting uh, aggressive on a car on the uh, F line and a uh, strap hanger took matters into his, his own hand, thought, you know, potentially he was going to um, attack someone or maybe had a gun and put him in a chokehold. A couple other passengers helped him subdue, subdue uh, the man, Jordan Neely, and he died. And AOC and others have jumped in and, of course, want to make this into a, uh, a racial thing. The, the guy who had him in the chokehold is uh, a white guy and Neely was black. This is obviously a terrible tragedy, but the larger context here is an utter failure of New York City on every single level, on the level of human compassion and just letting uh, mentally ill people rot uh, and on the streets and wander around in, in the streets and engage in conduct that is bad for for them and bad for everyone around them. And occasionally, you know, not not in most cases, but occasionally it results in terrible crimes, including on the subways. And then uh, also that's sort of the, the, the soft version of their failure and the hard version of their failure is failing to provide order. And the, uh, the the good news here is if you actually did it, you, you'd be able to uh, succeed on both metrics. You treat mentally ill people more compassionately by not just letting them wander around and having people step over them on the sidewalks while they're, they're sleeping there amid their delusions and make people feel safer and whether the uh, the guy who put Neely in the, the chokehold was a acting r rationally uh, or not, you know, we'll, we'll learn more, creating an environment where he doesn't have to be afraid. And everyone on that car doesn't have to be afraid that something terrible is going to happen. Yeah, I um, – forgive me if I, if I rant a little bit here. Uh, I've never been more disgusted with progressive society 
than watching this story unfold in the media. Um, you know, there's all these, all this sanctimony, right? Say his name, Jordan Neely. And you, and it's just like, okay, this is a guy who was, his death is absolutely a tragedy, right? Full stop. It's a tragedy. It's horrible that he was abandoned to his psychosis and his addictions. He was abandoned by Blue America, by institutions in Blue America, who with whom he was in constant contact with the police, the mental health services of New York city, um, social services. This was a known person. He's one of these people that in New York city that soaks up tens of thousands of dollars of revenue every year, right? Where with, uh, the amount of treatment he has with the city's authorities. And, He's just still out there harassing people in the streets. Now, I don't know the, the story of the man who, who choked him on the subway. Was this person from out of town? You know, was this a person who doesn't understand that in New York City, the, the, the norm and the social expectation is to just stare at your shoes while a homeless, drugged out person screams at Asian people and tries to fondle women on the subway? Like that, because that's what normally happens in New York City on the subways now. It's become totally normalized, right? And and what and what happens is right the the expect the expectation is for all men to be eunuchs, right? Why is that the expectation? Because there's nowhere to take this person. Mm-hmm. You could take them to the police; they'll be out hours later. You could take them to mental health services; they'll be on the street in a box a week later. There's no, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like in a normal in a normal society. And in most cities around the world, if that kind of behavior is seen, the police or just a man taking responsibility would take Jordan Neely to the institution that is equipped to handle him. Yeah. And, so, and, so this is another. Yeah. This is another huge aspect of this phenomenon. You're absolutely right. It makes everyone complicit, right? So, so you can't. If your normal human reaction, you see a schizophrenic person in deep distress, you're going to help that person, right? You know, if it happens, yes. you know, in the village you live in, someone's going to help that person, right? You just just wouldn't look the other way. But you have to look the other way in New York City because there, right. there's no nothing's going to be done. Nothing's going to happen, and there are too many of them all over the place. And then this other phenomenon. And we've seen example after example of this is just horrifying is these terrible things happen. People are actually attacked. Women are attacked and men do nothing. So, um, but, but, again, but we'll, the we'll, other, yeah, there's another side of it, though, right? Which is then because he is perceived to be the victim of a white person. Now, all of government officials in New York City and in Congress are suddenly waking up. Oh, Jordan Neely. I care about him because now mm-hmm. right. I, the person in power, can use this person's death yeah. as a way of accusing society as a whole, people who are powerless, of you know white supremacy, white malice, white privilege, white violence. So now Jordan Neely has a use mm-hmm. to right. and, and, and has the attention of the authorities. It is so corrupt. And so gross. If Jordan Neely had died in a homeless shelter of an overdose, no one would be talking mm-hmm. about him. If he had been killed in a homeless shelter by another homeless person or on the street by someone of his own color, 
No one would talk about him. Just like we're not talking about the the mass shooting that killed four and injured 32 in Alabama because the shooters were the wrong color and using the wrong sort mm-hmm. of weapons. It's not a national story. Right. Or, e- uh, or even just, just uh, not going to the tragic scenarios, just if his, uh, the rest of his life was wasted 30 years absolutely. wandering the streets doing this. No one, no, no one nobody, cares. Nobody, no one cares at all. He is only useful for demonizing and 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 the american public themselves it, this is this is a sign of a deeply sick society where our leaders hate us our leaders hate us they treated jordan neely throughout his life with total neglect and now they're using him in the most disgusting way possible mm-hmm. against the society the society around him when in fact the blame falls on all these institutions that are failing to do their job and make the city livable, it it is completely disgusting. So Charlie, you think a lot about self defense and the, the the rules around it. Do you, do you know enough about uh, the, the, this case to have a judgment about how justified this this chokehold was and what happened? No, this sort of case is extremely fact dependent the difference between a murder and a manslaughter in self-defense is timing provocation reasonable expectation and so forth and i just don't know enough about what happened here and how long the chokehold was legitimately or illegitimately performed i agree with pretty much everything that michael just said i just want to add a slightly more positive note and say that whatever it is that the press and progressives and the governor of New York are trying to achieve here, they will fail. You cannot gaslight, cajole, bully the American public into accepting crime and into regarding this tragic incident in the way that the media is covering it. It doesn't work. There are circumstances in which the citizens of free countries can be pushed and nudged along, but Americans especially will not put up with it on crime. And even if it turns out that the response here was overzealous, even if it turns out that on a statutory basis this was manslaughter, the general approach that Michael outlines is going to cause a backlash. Mm-hmm. It is not going to yield the set of policy prescriptions that the left wants. People know what is happening in the subways in New York. People know that crime is on the up. People know that the United States is being afflicted by prosecutors who don't prosecute and by all sorts of extravagant and bizarre theories of victimhood and law and crime and equality. And eventually, almost everywhere, they are going to push back against it. Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, was essentially bullied by Chris Hayes and others in the press into casting this as an incident that was completely divorced from any sort of predictable set of facts. She said that this man was killed for riding the subway. 
That is nonsense. Again, irrespective of where this falls legally, we all know that that is not true. And the upshot of her saying it, the upshot of her and others taking this line is going to be fewer Kathy Hochul's, not more people on the subway who are homeless and have mental illness terrorizing people. Yeah, she's she's a hack and and a disgrace. It was always clear she was a hack, but uh, it wasn't quite clear what a disgrace she would be. But she's she's proved it since she became governor. So Dominic Al Sharpton said, you know, this is terrible. We can't go back to a place where vigilantism is accepted again in New York City. But you're, if, if you have disorder, you're creating the environment where you're going to have vigilantism because in, in certain dire circumstances, there's not going to be any alternative. Yeah, vigilantism is wrong, but the solution to that is more police. Um, and I, I think uh, we kind of have um, uh, this problem here with just yeah, with just this hesitance to enforce the law on on you know in general and various things. One of the things that we notice in the way that this is talked about is that you know this happened on the subway. Um, if this had happened in certain precincts of New York City, where for some reason we just accept that there's crime there, we just we just throw up our hands and say, oh yeah, that's an area where crime happens. That that's that's a choice by. <laughs> That's a choice by the authorities um, to not enforce the law as strictly in some areas as in others. And um, and the idea that this, you know, that, like Michael said, you know, there's lots of scenarios we could imagine where this doesn't become a national news story. But I think one of the things that made it that was that it happened on the subway, which is a place where crime is not supposed to happen, as if there are areas where crime is supposed to happen. Um, this, uh, this, this person, um, Jordan Neely, um, his family's attorneys uh, mentioned that his mother was murdered when he was 14 years old mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by his stepfather. So this is a this is a you know multi generational failure of authorities mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's 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 an absolute tragedy that he was killed. It's also a tragedy that his mother was killed, and um, I think we just need to. There, there needs to be more of a realization that I mean, we just there needs to be more police. We need to be more consistent in the way that we enforce the laws in general because that helps to solve a lot of these problems. I mean, who knows what his life would have been like if he his mother was still alive and was able. I mean, we we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I just think that's that's just a, another part of this that that really does show that authorities you know don't take seriously that these law and order things are good for everyone. It's not something that is, you know, uh, only benefits certain groups of people right. or disadvantages well, certain people. I mean, th- this is good for everyone. And it's something that we need to just wake up to. And, and if I could just add one thing to that, it's not just that it's good for everyone is that it is actually better for the people that those who are trying to get rid of it say yes. they're defending. I never want to hear again, talk about equity or about disparate impact from the people who are trying to get rid of the police. The police obviously do help everyone, but if you got rid of the police from a given jurisdiction, it's the rich people who would survive the longest, who would have the resources to get through it. The, yeah, they'd, they'd create a police force. That's right, what they do. the people who suffer 
when this happens are the very people we are told all the time are at the bottom of the totem pole, are the victims of society. Well, when you take away these resources, you re-victimize them. So MBDX, question to you. This case will be an inflection point in how New York City treats homeless people uh, and mentally ill people, yes or no? Um, you know, we already had earlier this year, Adams announced an, uh, an expansive uh, or an expansion of New York's mental health services in order to get more mentally ill homeless people off of the street. I think we had editorialized at the time that it was a very good thing, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be enough. And um, it's not. They, they haven't dedicated enough resources yet. And, um, and they're not on track to dedicate enough yet. Hopefully this, this does it. I mean, the fact that Hochul and Adams have both said things that are at least, you know, less demagogic than what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said indicates to me that they, they are thinking in the right way that there is, um, you know, a responsibility of the state to get more involved, not less, um, with these people. So, yeah, I think it will be an inflection point. Charlie, inflection point? Well, I hope so, because it should, from top to bottom, highlight the problem with these policies. You have an environment in which people feel deeply unsafe. That environment yields vigilantism, and we should want neither of those things. We should want neither the unsafe environment nor the vigilantism that it breeds, and we know how to fix that. We've done it before. New York has done it before. So I hope so, but I do worry that there are certain parts of this country that are so steeped in ideology, at least within the governments that run them, that it's going to take a lot more before we get to that inflection point. Dominic? Yeah, I'm going to say qualified no. So um, I, I, I think it could be an inflection point in... Uh, in some, uh, you know, voters kind of perception of the issue. I think it could kind of shift the way that people think about, you know, how cities should deal with the mentally ill um, and the mentally ill who have the potential to be violent. But given what we know about the relationship between the New York City government and the New York State government, given what we know about the progressive interest groups that, um, you know, control uh, both of those institutions and do so often in conflicting ways um, and, and in ways that they, they do not get along with each other. Um, I am not, uh, I do not believe that this is going to lead to policy change uh, just yet, but it could uh, maybe down the road. Yeah, I basically agree with that. I, I, but I'm a little more of a no, I, I think. Eric Adams gets it, but he's feckless. And yeah. really dealing with this problem requires too much sound thinking and moral courage, more, more than uh, uh, than the center of gravity of uh, New York City and New York State authorities are uh, capable of. So unfortunately, I, I think the answer 
is no. With that, let me do a quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall, your way. If you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, your way to dive deeper into the NR community. If that floats your boat, you can comment on articles and blog posts. If you're an Enterplus member, you get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. Charlie, MBD, and I do a monthly call with a small group, maybe maybe 100 or so of Resume of NR Plus members just to have an informal conversation, no agenda, uh, just comments and questions, and we, we bounce off them and take it uh, where, it, where it may. So it's a great deal all around and very importantly is a, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. Ideally, we need people to pay for what they read. Isn't that a, a radical concept? So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you just watched Infernal Affairs, the movie. Yeah, I was ch- chatting with um, our own news news leader, Jack Crow, about gangster movies like The Departed or Ellie Confidential, and uh, just asked him if he'd seen Infernal Affairs, which is the 2002 Hong Kong movie that The Departed is based on. Uh, obviously, The Departed reset it in with a kind of Whitey Bulger type character as the lead, which is not, you know not what the Hong Kong film was about. But the original is just as good or better than Scorsese's reinterpretation, and it's just a fascinating movie to watch if you've seen The Departed because the director makes totally different choices about some of the plot points and whether to play them up maybe for laughs or for tension or for melodrama. Um, and it's just, it's the last, it's also the last great Hong Kong cop film. Um, I have like a very big spot for these because, um, the old Jackie Chan films, which were more comedic, were very dear to me. They were also a kind of a testament of Hong Kong's love for its police force when it was a body enforcing common law and decency in that country. And since 2002, both the police force and Jackie Chan have been perverted by the Chinese Communist Party. So there's a little bit of an elegiac quality to looking backward at these films. So, Dominic, things have been getting pretty crazy for you. You've been doing deep reading about Yugoslavia on Wikipedia. Yeah, every once in a while I just get uh, get down the Wikipedia rabbit hole on random topics. And the current one happens to be Yugoslavia. And uh, it's very just wild country. Um you look at, uh, you know, they split with the Soviet Union. They took kind of their own uh, foreign policy path, which led to them to have a very open uh, travel policy, unlike most of the rest of the communist countries. And as a result of that, they had all kinds of crazy um, uh, different kind of cultural exchanges. One of them was uh, this fusion music genre called Umex, which is, uh, as the title suggests, a combination of uh, Slavic music and Mexican music, and it is crazy. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, I've been uh, learning all kinds of weird things like that. Serbia is a, a deeply troubled place and pretty much always has been. Charlie Cook, you have a, a single dad weekend ahead of you. I am single dadding it this weekend. My wife's off to a wedding, and I'm just hoping 
that I can repeat my stellar performance from last time when I thrilled and impressed my children by doing things like toasting bread, which they didn't believe that I was able to do, <laughs> and feeding the dog and closing the garage door. I kept getting these compliments, genuine compliments, earnest compliments. Wow, Daddy, I didn't know you knew how to do any of that. And the, the that was making a peanut butter sandwich. So one of the great things about uh, being at NR is part of your quote-unquote job is hanging out <clears throat> with NR readers and supporters who are just wonderful people. And last night I was at, at a small dinner with some, some readers and, and supporters that was just, just terrific, hosted by my friend Alec, who is a terrific guy despite his many failings, including being a Mets fan and being opposed for some unaccountable reason to the laser strike zone, which is inevitably going to be upon us in a couple years. Which is inevitably going to be upon us and and will be a uh, another leap forward for the great game of baseball. But it was a heck of a lot of fun. And I should also say good night, Graham. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Dominic, what's your pick? My pick is Charlie's piece on the Democrats' tax problem. Uh, it's a great conservative victory of the last few decades that even the left-wing party in this country has to campaign on promising to not raise everybody's taxes. And so uh, this is he, he points out a lot of the hypocrisy and sort of uh, doublespeak that Democrats have to use on taxes because um, conservatives have succeeded in making tax increases so unpopular. Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is Noah Rothman's staunch and stirring defense of coffee, which is under attack from the New Puritans. There's an admonition in Esquire magazine. Is it time to quit coffee for good? Noah says it is not time to quit coffee or anything else like that that you enjoy. And this post has a terrific headline, which is, Cream and sugar with your cup of personal moral defect? <laughs> MBD. What's your pick? My pick, my pick is Charles, Charles Cook's forthcoming uh, post on Florida's legislative session and just what Ron DeSantis has been able to accomplish in about seven or eight weeks. Uh, read it. So have, have, you, uh, have you seen this in the system or you're just, just uh, by reputation you're picking it? Char- Char- Charlie has read extracts to me in his sonorous, <laughs> in his sonorous voice. So, so he called you and, he, and said, uh, MBD, no, I want just, you to, to just, hear this? Just, just before we were recorded, he was, he, was, <laughs> he was telling us this. So it's worth checking out. So as Chance would, would have it, mine is also a Minority Report-style preemptive pick. Word has filtered up to me that Dan McLaughlin is working on a, a big piece on the Supreme Court and the assault on it and um, a, a everything associated with this uh, phenomenon, because I'll say occasionally say, well, maybe maybe Dan could do this. Like, no, no, he can't right now. He's working on this big piece. And I am confident, as is always the case, when Dan is working on a, a big piece, it will be uh, the best and most authoritative thing written on the topic. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast retransmission or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Dominic. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Babel and Ball and Branch Sheets. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.